This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast covering all things on the intersection of finance and energy. I am here today, as usual, with Brian Doherty. How are you, Brian? I'm good. The The sun is shining. We are recording this amidst Sierra Week, actually. So I've spent the week listening in on some, some good dialogue. Uh, from industry as well as the investment community. So yeah, it's been a it's been an enlightening week for me. It's been a big week. That there's been a lot of uh, you know so social media and media in general has been covered up with Sarah Week. It looks like a yeah. uh, I guess the first digital Sarah Week. So it's been a virtual Sarah Week. So it's uh, it's interesting, right? Because I, I guess the accessibility to it then was I, I have to say um, you know I would think that I'm able to sort of tap into the conversations with a little bit better ease because I can work them into my schedule. You, you know, there's there's definitely some benefits to the virtual side of it, but I think everybody's missing the in-person dynamic. Yeah, and so many things. Yeah, so so many reasons why they, the, the in-person dynamic. But um, no, I, I'm impressed. I think the conversations have been great, and it's nice to see the level of engagement we've been seeing from clients. I mean, maybe it's, right, we live in this world, so maybe that's why we're so bombarded by Sierra Week. We <laughs> right. You know, we live in the world, so so we we see it all. Um, maybe for those outside, they don't they don't necessarily know what we're talking about here. But yeah, no, it's been great. Um, it, it's always a little bit exciting to hear hear the conversations that you're not always otherwise tuned into. Yeah, and we've got um, so, so so our guest today is Andre Utkin, who, who joins us from uh, Europe, and we're going to be talking about wind. Uh, Andre, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you, and thank you for having me today. Yeah, gladly. And this, uh, we, we promise not to make too big of a deal about it, but but this is also uh, an, an important episode for us because this is uh, our, our last podcast w- with Brian, who is going on to uh, to other adventures. Uh, so true, Hill. It's it's you know it is. I and I'm not just saying this; it's a little sad for me. It's it's exciting because we got Andre with us. He's actually a new guest, so that's very exciting. And I'm excited to sort of leave on on um, a hot topic note here for sure. But it's a little sad. I don't. I, maybe it's because obviously you know Hill and I speak a lot, but in in the nature of what the past year has been for for a dynamic for everybody, this this has felt like an outside connection. It's yeah. A little. It's a little bittersweet, but. Um, it is what it is, right? It is, and, and you know, the, no pressure or perhaps pressure, but but I was thinking uh, about um, Heya, which was of course <laughs> the big hit from from Outkast's last album, Speaker yeah. Box and Love Below. Which, all in all, um, that the hit was better than that album. But you know, we're we're going to try to repeat that. You know, that that the last uh, Outkast album will try to repeat the success that they had with, with our final. Uh, with our, with, their, with a big hit. Though. I, I thought you were going to go somewhere maybe bad about that, that, that like the album sucks. Are you saying my, my album of energy <laughs> sucks? Is this what, <laughs> but maybe we can have one good one. Well, when I'm not looking at Outkast <laughs> in a single album, because if you look at the whole thing, I mean, AT Aliens is, and Equimini are absolutely fantastic. Oh, they changed. Yeah. I mean, they had a huge influence. What, um, what year was 
Hey, like 2002? I think, well, no, let me look at my phone. I was still in college. 2003. I was not still in college. I had graduated college. You were just living like a college student, yeah. maybe. So th that's what the memory is. Yeah, because I remember I was back in Alberta, I think, when it hit. Oh, okay. And we have an Andre with us. Look at we that. do have an Andre. Uh, Andre. <laughs> connections. Yeah. And our topic, of course, is win, which is so fresh and so clean, clean. So, <laughs> so, so there's, I love it, Hill. There's the segue. Uh, so, 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 so uh, Andre, um, we, we've talked, Brie and I, on several other podcasts about clean energy, solar, hydrogen. You know, that there's a lot of obvious enthusiasm around the clean tech and clean energy space right now, which, is, of course, no, no secret. You know, I think hit us recently that the wind is a, is a bit of a horse of a different color and more mature than some of these these other technologies. Can you help to frame the overall wind environment right now, noting you know the, the differences in onshore and offshore? Before you know, I think we wanted to really dive into offshore um, for, for most of the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So that's a great question. And also for those people who were listening to um, Sarah Week sessions, uh, offshore wind is really a big topic these days, right? For different markets, particularly Northern Europe and mainland China, Asia, some emerging markets in the US. So now why offshore wind is so important and why so many people are talking about it. So if we're looking at projections and our outlooks to uh, onshore uh, versus offshore wind, onshore uh, is certain on a plateau, uh, saying that next, you know, 10 to 15 years, it's kind of stabilized near 50 to 60 gigawatt a year of new additions, and it's not supposed to grow on an annual basis. Now, offshore wind is a completely different animal. Um, right now, we're installing something around five to six gigawatt a year, and it is expected to uh, increase five to seven fold uh, by the end of the decade. So. Now, five gigs a year by the end of the decade is going to be uh, something around, you know, 25 to 30 gigawatts a year. So that's why there's so much room and so much new opportunities for conventional players for offshore wind, but also new players that are coming uh, into the industry. So, yeah, and different drivers, right, for those two technologies. Uh, now we more and more hear about green hydrogen, and so hydrogen, which is basically based on renewables. So uh, offshore wind is a technology which suits very well uh, for that for that green hydrogen production and also power supply. So, yeah, I guess that's um, that's the framework where we're living now. You mentioned, I, I think, something that has really jumped out at me over the last few weeks around offshore wind is just so much more conversation about the new players that are entering into that technology specifically mainly because it seems as though from the most recent uk auctions that they're they're the majors they're what we would back a couple of years ago describe as the traditional oil and gas major majors um yeah. that they are really getting into the fold here was that surprising that was expected anything how, how do you feel about the the changing corporate landscape yeah, this is a great question because um, I remember, let's say, five years ago or so, right? Like we 
um, the sector was fully dominated by European gas, oh sorry, yeah, gas and, and power utilities. So now it has dramatically changed. Now we see basically most of those European oil and gas majors coming into, into the game. Uh, BP, uh, Shell, Equinor, Total now. So all of them is in the game. Now probably the next move, the next big move will be the American oil and gas companies. So why it's happening? So first of all, you know, there is a massive pressure from the society. So all of them, they have carbon neutral goals by a certain years. It depends on the company, obviously, some to 2050, some to 2040. And, you know, offshore wind brings massive scale of new capacity. Can you build that with solar and wind onshore when Probably, but there is a problem with land, right? So to build a gigawatt or two or three gigawatt project, you need a massive piece of land. Now, if we're talking about Europe, not everyone wants to have a massive wind turbine on just the back of of, uh, of your yard. Uh, if we're talking about offshore wind, this is a completely different energy. You have three gigawatt project somewhere spinning in the middle of the sea. Nobody sees that. And it brings you a massive uh, um, capacity of green energy. So oil and gas players believe that they can leverage their core experience, right? Because there are so much experience in offshore activities, but also the supply chain that they used to be served is basically the same. So they feel this natural move um, towards uh, towards offshore offshore wind, and at the same time, um, you know, offshore wind also has to be split it into two. It's a conventional, so to say, bottom fixed. So we can go up to, I don't know, sixty, maybe maximum seventy meters depth. And then the, there is a also floating offshore wind, which is a completely different animal. These two technologies are not going to compete, um, but oil and gas players see it as a predominant part of offshore wind space where they can actually dominate and maybe compete against the conventional European so utilities think, and, and gas players. Are they more, and this, this speaks to my lack of understanding, when, when we talk about the floating versus the fixed bottom, Right. Are the more traditional offshore wind developers very much focused on fixed bottom and these these new entrants are going to maybe focus on floating? Does floating only work in some region? Like, why, why go fixed bottom? Is floating the way of the future and fixed bottom is just sort of what we got right now? How does that fit? Right. So the fundamental difference between these two, obviously, um, you know, bottom fixed, it's a mature technology, right? So we know how to install it. We have technology. We we have roughly 35 gigawatt of bottom fixed today uh, installed pretty much everywhere in the world, but mostly in Northern Europe. So Northern Europe is um, what UK, Denmark, Belgium, Netherlands, Germany, it's roughly 25 gigawatt and then additional 10 you have in mainland China. So that's been, that's been deployed so far. Now floating is really a pilot state right now. So we don't really have any commercial scale project being um, executed. Now this year, uh, 2021 is really a milestone for the technology because we're going to see two first commercial tenders, one in France and one in the UK. So literally this year, floating is going to become a, a mature technology, sorry to say. So it, it, it's getting scale. Now, when who's I say that this... Who's projects? Who's behind? Do we know who's behind those ones? Uh, so... Um, 
Equinor uh, is one of those oil and gas majors who has been developing this um, um, technology, um, and you know they have they have a few pilot projects, and now they're building 88 megawatt in Norway to supply electricity to oil and gas activities in offshore Norway. Now. When I say that these two technologies are not do- are not going to compete, I mean that if you can install bottom fixed, uh, and it's not only about depth. Sometimes it's all about seabed conditions. Seabed condition can be mm-hmm. so poor that bottom fixed cannot be technically installed. So, in this sense, if it's not bottom fixed, it's definitely floating. Now there are certain markets in the world, for example, Japan or uh, Western U.S. So near California or South Korea or Norway or UK or certain places in, you know, I'm speaking maybe long term, but Brazil, South Africa, Australia, the the water there is so deep that you actually cannot go with bottom fix. So floating is going to open up absolutely new markets. Yeah. And so those oil and gas players, you know, you, you can obviously go and try to compete with Orsted or Vattenfall or Ibidrola. So those companies who are very mature, who has large supply chains in Europe and compete to com, uh, to, to conventional uh, bottom fix, but it's much better to jump into floating and to start building and developing those projects in new markets, right? So it opened up just new business models for those. What's the general appetite, I guess, for for float? Well, for offshore and wind, for offshore wind period, but floating versus fixed. If I think about offshore oil and gas as a as a kind of corollary, you know, that there's NGO concerns, there's environmental concerns, and it's you think of some of the problems that, that have happened with offshore oil and gas development. Are people reluctant to embrace offshore wind for any? I mean, obviously, there's not going to be a wind spill, but is there Uh, there any concern? I mean, yeah, there are a lot of concerns. And, you know, when we're looking, for example, at developments in in the U.S., right, um, it's very hard to push the development of of, of this new first project and to get permissions. And you always confront to, you know, fishing industries and Mm -hmm. different competitive usage. It's not only fishing, like we've seen projects in Sweden um, and also in California being stopped by, um, you know, the the military usage or uh, some other other things. So yes, there is always a competition, but that's the beauty of, of, of floating that you actually um, if we if we manage to 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 make it work, I mean, you can deploy it absolutely everywhere. It it shouldn't be just ten or twenty or thirty kilometers to the shore. It can be somewhere, you know, hundreds kilometers to shore. And then, you know, all of those concerns that you mentioned, we can eliminate those. So it actually one of those points how floating can can be beneficial. It is is floating floating seems a lot more complex from an engineering perspective is it and therefore would change the returns profile exactly so it's much more complex as you said probably from the technical perspective you know the wind turbine stays pretty much the same right so yes there are certain modifications technical modifications needed uh, because actually your platform is moving all the time right so you have mm-hmm. to capture uh, certain winds so you have to adjust your wind turbine um, in in the direct of the wind, but the platform itself is very very complex. And then the the mooring system, so the system by which you attach your platform to the seabed, is also extremely um, risky as a system. Uh, but now it's all about scale, right? So 
now you know our projects our first pilot projects is like three four five wind turbines now with scale when we will start to build you know hundreds of those that's where the risk's going to be mitigated and also the cost going to go down if we're talking about cost for example today floating is just uncomparable to bottom fixed it's at least twice as much as bottom fixed and depending where we are and depending what kind of design are we choosing then yeah it can be up to three times but we believe wow. that by the end of the decade it's going to be dramatically reduced and so probably also by threefold um from today's level and you know i anticipate your your, your next question why floating has different designs so so far once again being a pilot technology there's so many different designs you can have spar buoy you can have semi-submersible you can have uh, there are roughly 45 to 50 different designs of those foundations and obviously if we have 35 different designs you cannot get into massive scale so this is the challenge with the industry has to uh, to overcome and has to choose maybe one or two or three preferable designs and to push these designs further into scale. And that's where the cost uh, is going to go down. And so when we look at, you know, obviously wind is kind of a global, the uh, wind energy is a global phenomenon. Are there areas that have better wind that if I'm looking globally, do, do I would I rather have my turbine in the North Sea, then the Gulf of Mexico, then offshore China, and, and, and why? What, what are, are there any predictive elements to, to those places that have the best wind? Absolutely. No, that's a great question. Of course, yeah. So uh, places are very different and spots are very different in terms of wind density and wind speeds. Uh, now, um, Northern Sea is just a perfect place for different, for different reasons, right? First of all, it has um, basically the best winds, one of the best winds in the world, then uh, it's relatively shallow. So once again, you can do bottom fix. And that's why we have 25 gigs already and a massive pipeline, which will be bottom fixed. Now, interconnection plays a great role because at the end of the day, you know, you have UK, France, Germany, mm -hmm. Belgium, Netherlands, Denmark, and all of this is interconnected. So, you know, now we are thinking about future designs of how you're going to interconnect all of those and to build artificial islands in the middle of North Sea or Baltic Sea and then, you know, to put some hydrogen platforms, electrolyzers, and then, you know, when the power price goes down somewhere, you just deliver that electricity where the power price goes up. And so there's different, different models which open up uh, new markets. But then Gulf of Mexico that you mentioned is is, is not the worst spot in the world either. It, it has great winds um, um, but now the issue is that it's it's relatively deep so gulf of mexico you have to go floating um, then latin america for example also different issues relatively relatively deep but if you look at winds in uh, certain places in brazil chile argentina great winds china has green wind, uh, great winds so yeah and obviously uh, eastern uh, northeast part of um, of of the us so that's uh, where um, the the current development mm -hmm. is happening right the state of new york and uh, massachusetts so this place is very equal let's say to northern sea but yeah further down the road obviously we're going to open new markets and go to southern europe and um 
once again, um, South South Africa and Asia. Asia has a massive potential. Um, Japan and uh, Taiwan, South Korea, Vietnam, all of those places will, they, they already started to develop and they will have some capacity uh, spinning. So I've got a, sort of just about that expansion into these different regions globally and again, speaks to you know my background that's been very much in more traditional forms of energy. When we think, you know, we always sort of looked at that world as the exploration, right? That would that kind of like when you look at exploration programs and how this plays out. And two things were always really important. And I'm, I'm interested to hear your perspective on offshore wind and how important these factors are. So one, you know, when you talk about the success that's happened in Europe, to me, what came out as very obvious was that whole into an established, well-integrated existent market. Right, that that there there is the benefit that there's there's quite good infrastructure once you get to land, and that those markets are very well integrated. That provides that transparency and and all those things that go along with it. Is that going to be a hurdle for some regional development? That like, do we see that as a real hurdle, or do we think that because this is coming from a green source, we don't expect the same hurdles to emerge around onshore above ground risk? I would call it. Uh, no, I I completely agree with you. Of course, the risks are there, and also, you know, offshore wind is normally installed where the load centers are, right? So that's mm-hmm. the beauty. Like you have this coastal cities, coastal, you know, massive consumption of power. Now, um, the biggest challenge I would say uh, in this new emerging markets, and not only in in northern Europe as well, is the grid connection, right? So grid connection is a massive problem, a massive issue. It has to um, it has to uh, attract massive investments and also grid reinforcement. Or sometimes we actually need to build it from scratch. So the grid is is simply not there. So it's somewhere in the land, not next to the next to the sea. And once again, we are bringing massive amounts of power. Right. So for talking about like one of those largest, uh, largest projects in the world, Doggy Bank, 3.6 gigawatt in the UK, it's an investment of roughly 10 billion dollars. And, you know, you have to build really the whole thing from scratch. So you have mm-hmm. to put massive substations somewhere in the sea on top of that, you know, expert cables and everything and then onshore substation and then somehow deliver that power to to consumers. So. It is a problem everywhere in the world. Uh, it's it's not that it's so much established in Europe, but in 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 other places it is not. So, yes, this is this is one of the inhibitors, and that's where the regulator has to intervene and really think very carefully how to design these new connections and interconnections between regions. So, Absolutely. if I'm looking, if if I'm to to, to continue kind of Brian's analogy here, if I'm exploring the world for wind. Uh, or for opportunities for, for for wind, you know, it seems like the North Sea is is the perfect place because you're close to the markets. You, you've got good wind and you've got you know a shallow sea. Where do I go next? Am I looking for good wind first, or, or access to markets first, um, or, or are we seeing kind of a bifurcation where some are building the projects in the good wind area, some closer to I guess put another way, where is the next best wind and is that project already happening or are people waiting to build a market to to, to access that wind? So obviously we're going to go to the markets where the wind is because, you know, there are certain places in, in the world where, you know, there's simply no wind. So it does not right. blow or it does not blow as well as, you know, 
onshore wind can be much more competitive than offshore. And then, of course, it does not make absolutely any sense to build because, once again, offshore, in terms of installation, it's it's so much more complex. You need to use this, you know, massive um, installation vessels and this old techniques and supply chain is just absolutely crazy. We're talking about, you know, the new pieces of uh, Siemens Gamesa um, or General Electric, which is, I don't know, the hub height of 160 meters and blades are 130 meters long. So it's a, it's a huge, massive infrastructure. So, of course, first of all, wind has to be there. Secondly, it's country by country specific. So it depends uh, what is the uh, power market uh, dynamics, uh, what are you trying to achieve with this technology and what drives that. So in Europe, for example, now we have this, you know, massive ambitions of green hydrogen, right? So it Mm -hmm. has it has been established already. We have a target of 40 gigawatt of electrolyzers by 2030. Now, how are we going to achieve that? Well, once again, offshore wind is a great technology which suits the purpose. Uh, and why is it so? Because of very high capacity factors, we can reach up to you know 60, 65, which basically brings us pretty much to the base load. Now, can you achieve this target with, with solar panels, for example? Well, in some regions, probably, but it's, you know, if there's no sun, there is no electricity. So it's a combination of different drivers, let's say, and in every single country in the world, it's going to be different. Take the example of Japan. They want to close their nuclear capacity, right? They're trying to phase out coal and stuff. So for them, offshore wind is a natural move, uh, which might not be the case in some other countries in the world. So for France, for example, we have here roughly, I don't know, 80% of electricity coming from nuclear, right? So, and it's, and it's aging, the fleet mm-hmm. is aging. So are we, are we willing to build from scratch all that nuclear capacity once again? Well, to a certain extent, but, you know, we have to substitute it with something, right? And, fl- and once again, offshore wind can suit there. They also, ha- I have to mention that France has has great uh, wind resources from Atlantic Ocean and also in between um, France and the UK. So, yeah. And Japan's I, got good wind as well. You, you mentioned them a second ago. Japan's got good wind. Yes, Japan has also great wind. But the problem with Japan is, once again, very deep waters. So Japan, okay. Japan is observed by the um, global industry as one of that spot where they will be building floating first. Which um, makes these pilot projects in 2021 so critical as far as, right? As to, as well, but of, once again, the, those are not going to be pilots anymore. Those are... Right, you know, those are going to be established technology. But the, like once we see those up and running, the ability to translate absolutely. that technology to some of these absolutely. deeper funds. Absolutely. The other question, how does it work and... You know what? Just tell me if this is if this getting something too technical, and and we can we can leave the question there. What about like royalty regimes? Are these being negotiated? Do these work like oil and gas, where the countries you know have to negotiate different royalty regimes around? Uh, how how does that work? It very much depends uh, on the country and the policy, and um, you know, in certain countries like Germany, for example, that's the government who uh, kind of predefines the sites, and then um, there is an auction, right? So right. companies they already have some 
you know, preliminary designs. They kind of, you know, choose this or that turbine supplier or this or that um, technology, and then they go to the auction and they bid. Now, um, it very much depends on the policy. Policies are really different, and also subsidy schemes are very different. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to call them not subsidy schemes, but support. Um, <laughs> and support is very different across the world. Uh, so uh-huh. in Europe, for example, in most mature markets like UK or France, we use something called contract for difference. So which means that basically when a developer goes to the auction and he bids for a certain price, normally that's in megawatt hours, right? So you Uh say that, okay, for the next, let's say for the first 15 to 20 years, I'm going to receive that amount of money per megawatt produced. Mm -hmm. Now, how CFD works is that if your market price, uh, power market price is above the the bidding price, so the government's going to return you back the delta, the difference. But if uh, the market price below, um, you're gonna uh, you're gonna pay it back to the government. So that's how it works. Uh, now there are different schemes. We have uh, premiums. We have uh, tax intensive in um, in the U.S. We have uh, green certificates in uh, in Taiwan, for example. And so that's 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 really country by country specific. Now, for example, what is super interesting? A few weeks ago, there was the first. It's not actually the first. It was the fourth leasing auction in the UK. Now, that was the first leasing round when companies actually had to pay for a lease to be able to develop something there. And the prices oh. that we saw in that auction were were crazy, right. were, were very, very, very high. And was also super interesting to see that uh, mostly it's oil and gas majors who got the mm-hmm. capacity, not really conventional players. So... And so do you think these conventional the, players are being pushed out? Uh, like, can they not? Can they not pay? Is this creating a barrier for entry? At the, you know, are, are these are these large IOC oil and gas players, for instance, now maybe going to be increasing the cost of the auctions, and and it becomes a barrier of entry for these more conventional players? Well, that's what we observed uh, in in the UK for the first time, right? So that's something that happened for the first time, and uh, you know. I was talking to uh, conventional players and, you know, there is a certain understanding that the, as of now, there is a room for everyone. So um, conventional players, they prefer to take uh, lower risks and to mm-hmm. go to some more established or less established markets, let's say more emerging markets where you can get better returns like Taiwan, for example, where you still have feed-in tariff relative, much higher than in Europe, for example, or you United States or uh, some other countries where, you know, they can deliver experience and knowledge and those kind of things. So yeah, oil and gas companies were very bullish in that auction, but we're going to see uh, what, what's going what's going to happen next. Um, there, there's enough out there for everyone, enough wind for everybody to start catching. As, as for now, I bet so, yeah. yeah. Do we see them kind of splitting? I think it's interesting that, that the established wind players, you know, which I assume are names like Iberdrola and Enel and some of these uh, Orsted, and then you've got what I would call a new entrance, um, and, and maybe that's that, that's unfair, but but Equinor, Total, some of these legacy oil and gas companies, they, they each bring a different core competency to, to the business model. You know, the, the the offshore oil and gas company is very good at managing an offshore project um, and all that goes with that, and the the you know to to an extent creating a market for a discovery. 
Um, whereas I would argue the, the NLs or the overall are, are maybe better at accessing an established market. Do we see a, a collaboration or, or perhaps oh, yes. gas companies establishing, going to the emerging market opportunity rather than the established market opportunity? Right. No, that's, that's a great question. And also, um, you know, oil and gas companies, they do not bid or they do not develop themselves. So whenever we we see any project, basically, in whatever country, being US or UK, it's always, or in most of the cases, that's going to be a collaboration between the established one and the oil and gas company. Okay. Now, take the example of Denmark. Now there is a tender for one gigawatt, uh, one gigawatt capacity, which will be announced, I guess, at the end of this year. Ibidrola is bidding with Total, for example, 50-50. Now BP uh, is also uh, partnering with different established uh, partners, 50-50 GV. So it's it's mostly a collaboration and oil and gas companies it's in their dna they they want to split risks 50-50 because once again offshore wind is a very costly technology we're talking about tens of billions of dollars in one project so when you go with someone more experienced you actually learn and you're willing to pay for this it's learning curve is that the big, you know, the, the, the next big merger play? You know, years ago, there was Chevron Texaco and Exxon Mobil. It is the next round something like Equinor Iberdrola or, or you know, t- taking a legacy u- utility and a legacy oil and gas company and tying them together. Is, is that beyond the realm of possibilities? Well, we're going to see. Uh, we're going to see what's going to be in future. But, you know, uh, as of now, yeah, more and more oil and gas players are trying to to be seen as you know energy companies right so they they don't want just to have their core business uh, oil and gas they see that you know they're doing different things they're doing renewables they're doing green hydrogen and um, yeah they see themselves not as a maybe you know power they are not willing to become fully power utilities but rather than integrated companies so yeah definitely there is a transformation now how fast this transformation is going to go it very much depends on policy and on support schemes and um, you know national targets of different countries because that's what is crucial here Uh, most of this project cannot be built without support um, in most of the places in the world now talking about offshore wind particularly um, there are two countries where we already saw massive tenders with no subsidies whatsoever it's netherlands and germany and so uh, Orsted has uh, some capacity Wattenfall has some capacity shell one one gigawatt of um, zero subsidy project in netherlands to build green hydrogen but um, i don't see you know um, zero subsidy been as a new reality, for example. Does that play into the hands of some of the national oil companies? If, if government support is so important here, does that create an opportunity for those countries who have big presence of national oil companies looking to define their, redefine their activities or, or identities? I think, yeah. I mean, it's not only about national oil and gas companies; it's power utilities as well, right? It's yeah. just it's just in the core of the technology. I mean, it is costly, and somebody has to pay for this, right? So, um, also, you know, power markets are, are pretty pretty volatile these days. I mean, the more the more renewables you build, the the more cannibalization effect you're gonna uh, you're gonna see in future, right? So, yeah, uh, as of now. 
power markets are much more predictable than 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 oil, right? So, um, but moving forward, when we see this massive additions of wind and solar. At the end of the day, um, you have to mitigate your risk, so you have to contract somehow your capacity in this or that way. So, and there are actually two ways today. So the first one is to to be subsidized, or the second one is to to have PPA, so power purchase agreements. So that's what we see in 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 Europe. There is a massive collaboration between you know the big consumers of electricity for example data centers like i don't know amazon is one of the examples they they they've been purchasing so much and also this is super interesting for this new business models for zero subsidy uh, offshore wind projects in europe when um you know a project will not move into the um, construction phase unless a biggest chunk of that is contracted somehow. So even Orsted, having had this 900 megawatt in Germany, it's going to sign PPA first for, I don't know, like 60% of that for the next 15 years, right? And only then you're going to proceed. So, I mean, yeah, clearly. But as you said, we like Amazon came to the table and signed a massive PPA, and there are so many corporates out there right now with these absolutely with these zero uh, targets that inevitably exactly. So that's more a, more that, that, that's be, a match match, yeah. Yeah, that they're going to be forced to sort of come to the table on that. I think I actually think that's something we've talked about it before, Hill and I on on one of our podcasts that 2020 was very much the announcements of these of these zero targets, but 2021 yeah. sort of being potentially, hopefully, the year at which you start to get better structure around exactly how those are going to be achieved. And I think the PPAs from the corporate side is a, is a really interesting way to do that. How, and I know that there's still so much known unknown, it's only been a month into the administration. Do we see the change in the U.S. administration as maybe giving new legs to offshore wind development within the U.S. specifically. I, I know we've talked about, obviously, Asia is going to be a hotspot of development and, and Europe is a leader at the moment. But where where do we see the space um, going for the U.S. under the U.S. administration? Right. So, no, that's a great question. I think uh, we still have to, you know, um, wait and see. Uh, but great news is that, first of all, uh, at the beginning of this year, um, so we now have a new um, tax credits, uh, which expired actually last year. So the, the industry was kind of, you know, hesitant, like how it's going to move forward. Now we have a new tax credit dedicated to offshore wind for the next 10 years. So that gives us a bit of more room to, to, to proceed. Now, I, I guess the biggest challenge in the U.S. so far was to get all the permissions, all the necessary permissions for the project to move into the construction phase. And that's where first um, U.S. projects struggled so much. Uh, Vineyard Wind, for example, been one of those. But you have, you know, the target of 30 to 35 gigawatt in the U.S. by 2030. Um, so I really think... But this is my personal belief. I think that now probably things gonna go smoother and quicker um, from this from this perspective. So I feel like, you know, first projects will struggle. It took really uh, a long time to uh, to get those, but um, probably Winyard Wind will uh, move into the construction phase um, somewhere by the end of this year. And yeah, Perfect. so that's. I'm going to ask you what might be an unfair question, and we're going to end on that. <laughs> Please. Um, it's it's always the most difficult question, and we ask it a lot. Right. But obviously, you know, there's the equities. If you want to increase your exposure to offshore wind, 
there's the ability to pick up some equities that are getting into position to be involved in, in the space. Are there other parts of the value chain? Where, where are the investable themes in offshore wind, do you think? That's, that's a great question. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, what is the major difference between offshore wind and onshore wind uh, is the installation process, right? So, uh, to install offshore wind, you need this absolutely massive giant vessels, uh, right? And this is one of the potential bottlenecks to the further expansion of the technology, massive expansion. Now, today in the world, we have, excluding mainland China, we have 16 vessels that are actually capable of installing wind turbines. Now, one six. Wind, one six. Wow. So, um, you know, wind turbines are increasing in size dramatically. Like now we're installing something around seven to eight megawatts a unit. Uh, in five years time, it will be 15 megawatts. And by 2030, probably 20 megawatts. So whatever vessels we have today, they are not capable of installing 20 megawatts whatsoever. So how many uh, vessels per, is there like a, you need one vessel per project? Like what? what's that? What's that metric kind of sound like? Well, it depends. It depends on the scale of a project, right? Like okay. if we're talking about 3.6 gigawatt, probably you don't want to have just one vessel. It's just better to have two or probably even better to have three, right? <laughs> uh, now, because it's just going to yeah. get quicker. So there are a few vessels right now under construction that can potentially install 15 plus megawatt turbines. But you have so many countries who want to develop offshore wind at the same time, okay. right? So if you want to build in France and Poland and Germany and Netherlands and Belgium at the same time, you probably do not have enough vessels to do that job. Now, in the United States, for example, you do not have any vessel that is capable of installing offshore wind. Now, Dominion Energy right now is building the first dedicated wind turbine installation vessel. Uh, but is it enough to deliver 30 gigawatt by 2030? No, it's not enough because the vessel can do probably maximum one gig, but you want to have 30. And in the US, you have something called uh, Jones Act, right? So, mm -hmm. which, which says you that, you know, the vessel has to be built in the United States and operated by the US crew. So, you know, this is a potential investment, massive investment uh, opportunity um, in, 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 in many places in the world. Uh, so, yeah. That, that is one of the nice. best answers I think we've had to that question, Hill. Yeah. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure what the answer was going to be, and, and you kind of got me excited off that. That's a solid identification of what sounds to be a very real bottleneck. Um, it is, yeah. yeah. So yeah. there you have it, listeners. And if the uh, cruise ship industry doesn't come back, maybe we'll have carnival yeah, wind so turbine install <laughs> installers. You know, it'll, it'll be a whole repurposing. Everyone gets um, rebranded. That's that's right. This is that's I. It's very interesting. That is just an angle I'd never even thought of. How how are they getting these things installed? Of course, it's vessels. Well, that's yeah. what's so great about these conversations, right? Is things that uh, I would have never really been thinking about it uh, forty minutes ago. Now are <laughs> at the very top of my radar, which is fantastic. We really appreciate you joining us, Andre. That was great. No, thank you so much for, for having me. That was great. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, this has been great. I think this is, uh, I think this meets our Hey uh, uh, qualification as a, as a hit single for, for our final uh, episode together with, with Brian. So, so at, thank at both of you. At least it feels that way to me. So, yeah. you know, we should replace, maybe we replace our little, our exit music with a little Hey Yeah. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> All right, we're um, going to sign off. Great. 
uh, and th thank you, Andre and, and Brian. But best of luck in your future, uh, your future efforts. Thank you, Jimmy. I will be tuning in forever to Energy Sense with Hill Vaden. Um, <laughs> can't go wrong with this guy. He's always, he's always bringing the very best to the table. We will try. Thank you. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.